we've had a, a, a very stimulating and interesting day, I'm sure you'll all agree, looking at both intelligence and diplomacy. And um, in this short talk to wrap things up, I'm actually going to go back a bit more to the, if you like, the straight intelligence thing rather than the di diplomatic side, even though in my career I've worked on both, and draw a few conclusions about what the First World War did in terms of intelligence and what happened um, that had a long-lasting effect. Because there's no doubt that any war is a tremendously powerful catalyst for the development of secret intelligence. War is actually good business if you're a spy. Um, at, but in any case, um, war promotes creativity through necessity, through advances in both human and technical intelligence. And I'm going to say, really, that in terms of both civil and military intelligence, the First World War laid the foundations for what we know as intelligence today and the kind of intelligence landscape with which we are all familiar. There were really four main areas in which important lessons were learned in the First World War in intelligence terms. I think, firstly, the organisation of intelligence, the way that it was organised, really, uh, domestic intelligence, that is the work of the security service, MI5, including what we now know as homeland security um, and the use of double agents, that kind of thing. Thirdly, overseas intelligence, um, including the role of civilians and local populations in time of war. And fourthly, technical developments. Now, in each case, none of these were sprang out of nowhere in the First World War. They were part of a, of a continuum and there had been historical precedents. But the First World War did present new and sometimes unexpected challenges for the British authorities that transformed the intelligence landscape and set its shape for the future. Now, as we've heard from various speakers today, it was the prospect of war with Germany in the, in the 10 years before 1914 that made the British government realise that far more and better intelligence was required and some kind of machinery for effective counter-espionage, the, the spy scares and so on, uh, and these uh, terrible stories of all German waiters were spies was one of the things that was written about. Um, and the realisation that you'd have to have a civil as well as a military component in intelligence, and that was what led to the uh, to formation of the Secret Service Bureau that Stephen Twigg talked to us about this morning. So in this sense, you can argue that the First World War had a catalytic effect even <coughs> before it broke out. <clears throat> there were always tensions between military... Uh, even today, military authorities always think that intelligence means military intelligence. They do work with civil intelligence, of course they do, but there is an innate tension, and there certainly was in the First World War when um, the idea of having civilian intelligence was really a very new one. But nevertheless, despite those difficulties, the overall story of organisational development during the First World War was one of successful protection of the British state, and a surprisingly creative use of the available resources, producing a steady stream of useful intelligence. And valuable lessons were certainly learned for the future, not least that intelligence has to be multifaceted, and it must include economic, security, commercial intelligence, and in fact the blockade, which we heard about earlier as well, 
depended a lot on the use of economic intelligence. And this was going to be a very important thing for the Second World War, because in fact, the lessons learned, the, 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 the lessons from the First World War blockade had been carefully written up after the First World War and were literally dusted down and got out and looked at again just before the Second World War when they were putting together what became the Ministry of Economic Warfare. And the fact that on the 3rd of September 1939, that ministry was activated, trading with the enemy legislation was passed and a blockade was set up owed a lot to the fact they'd done it all before. Other lessons, perhaps a little bit more mundane, the importance of record keeping might seem a small thing, but actually all the intelligence bodies discover that if you don't write it down, you forget it and you, you might not be able to communicate it to the people who need to see it. If you're receiving intelligence reports from secret agents overseas, there has to be some mechanism for deciding, are they right? Are they accurate? Are they worth having? Are they making any difference? You can't believe everything you're told, especially if you're being told by spies. You need a systematic coordination between civil and military authorities. You need effective liaison with the same kind of organisations with the allies that you're fighting with, and that's quite difficult to do. And in the British case, you need to make sure that the Foreign Office, and bear in mind that at this level, at the First World War, in fact, way through the Second World War and after, the purse strings are held by the Foreign Office because it is the Foreign Office that controls the secret vote. So if you want money for your secret operation, you've got to ask the Foreign Office who tell the Treasury to give it to you or not. So you've got to keep on good terms with the Foreign Office. Um, all these things, you have to make sure that government ministers understand that intelligence is important. You've got to show them that good intelligence makes a difference to the way the war's going. So all this is to do, again, with evaluation, with record-keeping. <coughs> In time of war, you've also got to learn that you must be constantly adapting to changes and not just in the military situation. <coughs> For example, we've heard a certain amount today about the question of Russia uh, and the Bolshevik Revolution in November 1917 required an entirely new kind of response from both MI5, Britain's Domestic Intelligence Agency, and SIS. Now, I know it wasn't called SIS during the First World War. It was called Section MI1C, but that's such a, a mouthful. I'm going to call it SIS. MI5 had to think about possible domestic subversion in Britain as a spillover from the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, MI6 was thinking about Soviet espionage and propaganda throughout the empire and the wider world. So crossover issues like this, where the lines between espionage and counter-espionage can become blurred, they also presaged future jurisdictional clashes between the agencies. And again, that's something you see all the way through. Now, I'm going to talk about SIGINT or cryptographical work in a moment, but um, I just want to mention that, uh, that there was, it wasn't only Room 40, of course. Um, the, uh, the Admiralty had Room 40, and the War Office had something called MI1B, and they were both doing this well, but I'll come back to that. Let's just think for a moment about the lessons that MI5 learned during the First World War. Now, 
through there trying to handle the spy scares. And first, they, they did make quite a few arrests early in the First World War, not as many as they thought they would have to make. And there was a certain amount of overreaction, public paranoia about invasion scares and supposedly ubiquitous German agents in Britain, which we've heard about. That was a bit of a problem in the Second World War too. There are some wonderful uh, reports, indeed in files in this in this building, about people reporting signalling uh, from sea when they're kind of in Leicestershire or somewhere, um, and sinister-looking pigeons. But we'll, uh, we won't worry about that. But tracking down enemy agents in Britain not only honed MI5's investiga investigative procedures, but it laid the foundation for what, during the Second World War, would be the enormously successful double-cross uh, um, system which is turning enemy agents into double agents working on behalf of Britain. They didn't use the system very widely in the First World War, but the idea of turning enemy spies to spread disinformation overseas, along with the use of imaginary networks controlled by imaginary agents, to spread this kind of information was an important precedent. Another area of MI5's activities in the First World War, which was developed and refined, was the penetration of foreign embassies in London by interception of mail and of telephone lines, as well as by the use of agents within embassies. I mean, surveillance, as somebody said earlier, is nothing new. And at the same time, during the First World War, they learned a lot more about the use of protective security, things like censorship, background checks on possibly undesirable people. They checked more than 75,000 people did background checks during the First World War. Closer working with the police, the expansion of ports police, for example. And all the early work done in the First World War was a valuable foundation for the far more sophisticated procedures that were introduced when you had more advanced radio, wireless, cryptographic equipment and so on. From 1916 onwards, there was also a lot of work done on counter-subversion against industrial militants and communists uh, in Britain, as well as uh, investigation of pacifists. All this was to be used later on. Um, now, for SIS, the First World War was what the official his history called an undoubted baptism of fire. I think there's no two way. And as Stephen indicated, they hadn't really got very far by uh, the time war broke out in 1914. Indeed, all the agents they put up the Franco-Belgian border failed to detect any untoward activity uh, before the war broke out. Uh, there was also a lot of friction between SIS and the military authorities. There were a number of networks operating on the continent, all of whom, of course, uh, wanted to be in control. They wanted to control intelligence activities across the peace during wartime. But... These difficulties didn't prevent the production of a significant amount of intelligence and the development of an increasing professionalism within both the military and civil intelligence organisations, which were to, despite the fact that intelligence was cut back at the end of the war, intelligence is always cut back at the end of every war. Intelligence was cut back at the end of the Cold War. Uh, it happens every time. Uh, it's the so-called peace dividend, and then it's always built back up again when they discover that things aren't really as rosy as people thought they were. 
So these kind of working produce for SIS a valuable set of lessons in terms of operational development. One of the lessons they learned was the need, as I've mentioned, for close liaison with military. Now, and that led, in the case of SIS, to the um, embedding, as we would say today, um, or sort of secondment, of service representatives, representatives from all the armed services within SIS itself. Um, and that obviously was something that uh, um, was very important to continue liaison. Indeed, for example, Stuart Mingis, who was to be C, or the chief of SIS, uh, between 1939 and 53, started out as the army representative within SIS in 1923. Another big lesson for SIS was that however much you need greater coordination and liaison, security and secrecy remain paramount. In wartime, there is a strong reason for the primacy of military direction, but in peacetime, SIS operates best under the radar, avoiding military and even <coughs> foreign office scrutiny as far as possible. Secrecy was, and still is, absolutely essential for overseas operations. And the First World War established the rule that agents serving abroad must never use their own names. They should operate under the cover of some legitimate activity, uh, whether it's official or commercial. They mustn't interfere in the affairs of the country to which they're posted, and non-British agents must never know by whom they're employed. Now, clearly, sometimes things go wrong, but those were the rules, and the First World War tested a lot of them out. And it was human intelligence working for SIS that provided among the most stunning successes in the First World War. Some of this was provided by high-class agents. There was a man called... Dr. Karl Kruger, his designation was TR-16. Um, interestingly, the TR, uh, Cumming, who we saw earlier, who was the first chief of SIS, used to refer, refer to Germans as TRs. Uh, and in his mind, that stood for tariff reformers, which were bad chaps. <laughs> anyway, TR-16, he was a German naval engineer who consistently supplied accurate intelligence on German shipbuilding and shipping throughout the war. But <coughs> civilians also made outstanding contributions. In Belgium, there was a network called La Dame Blanche, comprising at one stage more than 800 people, of whom a large number were women. Uh, they operated an extensive system of train watching and reporting on German military movements. In one case, there was a family where the great-grandmother, grandmother, mother and children took it in turns on a rotor to stand at the window of their house, which happened to be near a railroad junction, and reported. And they used to send messages, you know, tucked in a loaf um, or in, in all sorts of odd things to get, them, uh, get the information back to uh, Allied intelligence. We've been talking about the Middle East. We've been hearing some interesting details of the Middle East now. One of the complications of the system, uh, the uh, situation, which we have already heard was extremely complicated, was the fact that British intelligence during the First World War received a lot of valuable intelligence from a network called NILI, which was a Zionist group operating out of Palestine. Now, this was already in existence before the war broke out, uh, and Aaron Aronson's the man who ran it, um, this group was 
actively working for a Zionist state. And of course, what they wanted in return for providing very valuable intelligence to British was a promise that they would get a Zionist state at the end of the war. That is another layer of um, promises and obligations to the ones that we've already heard of from uh, Juliet. Businessmen were useful too, because even in wartime, businessmen can find it quite easy to move round, uh, even in war zones. And some individuals who've got a particular type of local knowledge, I mean, T.E. Lawrence was indeed one of them, can provide a unique insight into remote regions and populations. So all these are varieties of what they they call humint, and it had an enduring legacy uh, in the use, for example, later on in the Second World War, of resistance movements, sabotage and subversion in connection with the work of the Special Operations Executive. Moving on to technical developments. Now, one obvious change in the First World War is in the use of aircraft, which you didn't have before. The first powered flight had only happened 10 years earlier, and machines were still very basic in 1914, but they made enormous strides quite quickly. And aircraft are used during the war for reconnaissance, for aerial photography, um, which of course were particularly relevant in trench warfare situations, and development of air defence um, defense systems. But it must be right, I think, to single out the development of signals intelligence, or SIGINT as it's called, which really did change the British intelligence landscape permanently and laid the foundations for much of today's communications technology. There really was no SIGINT capability in 1914. It had to be built virtually from scratch. Um, I'm going to say a little bit more about this because um, we haven't heard too much about this side today. Um, they really, Britain had no permanent SIGINT apparatus. There had been some cryptanalytical work done during the Boer War, uh, prompted by the need to protect the telegraphic cables which joined up the empire and to evade censorship, which was another um, example of the catalytic effect of conflict. But little effort was made to carry this work on after the Boer War, um, even though the War Office had set up a special section for intelligence policy, which included developing codes and ciphers. Um, But the Navy was even less prepared, um, and according to one account, as the crisis of summer 1914 unfolded, Britain was totally unprepared to conduct SIGINT in the coming war. But, and this is a GCHQ quote, all the dots were in place and waiting to be joined. (laughs) And the war was the crucial catalyst. And it took the the practice of SIGINT in wartime to show that this means of producing intelligence was novel and significantly different from any other the UK had previously used. Now, we've heard um, a bit about uh, Room 40, um, and there was also the rather less well-known work of the war officers SIGINT unit MI1B. They each developed in slightly different ways and each had some significant successes. Um, Room 40 brought into being to try to decode German naval signals received by the Admiralty and um, from commercial wireless stations helped by captured German code books. They benefited, as we've already heard, from Churchill's support particularly. 
And of course, room 40 uh, is remembered for the decoding of the Zimmerman telegram, which we've heard a lot of, and I'm not going to talk about again, except to say, somebody asked, why, how on earth would Zimmerman send the telegram? Well, I can understand Zimmerman sending the telegram, but I think what it does show is the Germans absolutely did not think that we would be reading it. Just as in the Second World War, they absolutely did not think that we could possibly have broken Enigma. So there's a little link there. Now, MI1B, which was originally MO5, you go through all these designations, was smaller and it had a slower start. And initially, it worked on German military codes in conjunction with the French War Ministry SIGINT team, which was actually rather more well-developed. Um, it specialised in diplomatic interception and decryption, and its work grew in scope and significance as a result of the war, expanding into traffic analysis. Again, this is a significant area of work which really has not been done at all before the First World War, but it's developed because unlike the other two agencies, um, what becomes uh, in 1919 the Government Code and Cipher School, which is adjoining together the two, Room 14, <coughs> the MI1B, actually gets extra resource. And it's at the, actually the government, the cabinet takes the decision. Code breaking is so useful and important, we're going to keep it on, even though it's peacetime. And that's really a, a key factor. And between the two of them, uh, they move on. Uh, there are other significant lessons to be learned, such as, for example, how useful it is to employ linguists and classicists and civilian intellectuals, really, as they put it. And indeed, a number of those people who were recruited in the First World War, like Alistair Denniston, Nigel de Grey, Dilly Knox, Frank Birch, were to become key figures in SIGIN in the Second War as well. And the precedent of using civilians from that wide range of disciplines, of course, is followed in the Second World War at Bletchley Park uh, and elsewhere. So by the end of the First World War, Britain has developed from almost nothing a significant SIGINT capability um, in the Admiralty, in the War Office on the Western Front, because GHQ had its own cryptanalytical staff, and indeed there were uh, bases in the Middle East and so on. There were a number of radio intercept sections and a body of experienced cryptanalysts, linguists, traffic analysts. That what there wasn't at that stage was any central coordination, but as I said, um, it, is, it is put together um, after the war. So some of the lessons of the First World War were learned during it. Some of them were learned in its aftermath. Others were forgotten and had to be relearned again in the interwar period or even in the Second World War. There was one verdict generally reached after the First World War was that actually British intelligence was too fragmented and it needed to be better coordinated generally in order to tackle effectively the main objectives of espionage, gathering intelligence on the enemy and countering espionage, which is, of course, preventing the enemy from gathering intelligence on you. Now, although this is kind of a, a motherhood and apple pie argument, you really can't argue with it, it's a lot easier to say than it is to do. And the dividing line between espionage and countering espionage, between civil and military intelligence, remained, and indeed has remained, problematic. 
Although during the interwar period there were moves towards better coordination, creation, for example, of the Industrial Intelligence Centre uh, and the Joint Intelligence Committee in 1936, the experience of the Second World War showed that this kind of deep-seated tribalism, fueled by competition for scarce resources, which of course is always absolutely central to, um, well, not just intelligence agencies, but all government departments, um, persisted. And many of the problems do still persist today, even if it's in a different form. But the developments and the huge advances that took place during and as a result of the First World War, whether they're organisation or operational, technical, can be traced really in a barely broken line through the Spanish Civil War, for example, to the Second World War, from the Cold War, to more recent conflicts in Iraq, in Afghanistan, through to British intelligence in 2014, the centenary of its outbreak. If you look at the British intelligence landscape today, it is very similar in outline, if not in all details, to how it emerged <clears throat> from the First World War. Now, I think I'll stop there because you may have questions, and this was intended to be a very brief overview. Is that okay? Thank right. You. <laughs> This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.